And I had to resist the temptation this morning to not refer to living water as something you wash your hands with. Um, we're not going there in this morning's talk. Uh, when Jesus makes the offer of living water to this woman by the well, it is completely understandable that her interest would have been piqued. She would have been really keen to find out about it because living water that not only refreshed her but became a resource for other people would have been an amazing idea. Surely too much to hope for, really, but worth investigating, even if you didn't believe it were possible. So you can see why she would want to find out more. Uh, what does she have to lose, indeed? Because water is vital for life. I think we all know that, don't we? Most of us probably have had the experience of being thirsty from some time or other, uh, whether after demanding physical activity or uh, going for a long walk on a warm day without your water bottle and no 7-Eleven nearby or something like that. And uh, discovering your thirst and, being, and not being able to quench it is a very unpleasant thing. If you are thirsty and you go through the day and you remain thirsty, it actually takes quite a while to satiate, sate your thirst again. It, um, you can stay thirsty for a long time. Water is literally one of the components of life as we know it. Uh, apparently the scientists will tell you that the, the solvent nature of water means that it's uniquely suited to conveying nutrients through the barriers in our cells that are there to keep germs out. So the good stuff can come in, the bad stuff stays out, and without water that transfer doesn't take place. Did you know that's why you drink water? There you go. That's why we need the water. In arid environments, when access to water might be more difficult, this becomes even more heightened. Um, in our culture, where it would be very rare to hear of anybody dying from dehydration in Sydney because there's just so many sources of water that you can go to and get hold of. Um, but back in Jesus' day, things were not so straightforward. Settlements were set up around natural sources of water um, there was simply no point setting them up anywhere else. They wouldn't survive. And a really interesting example of this in India when we were there all those years ago, uh, down uh, near Agra where the Taj Mahal is, there's a little city outside of Agra called Fatapur Sikri. And it's up on a hill and it's worth a visit if ever you're in India because it's really well maintained. It's quite beautiful and it's got these... Uh, lovely walkways with arches and little aqueducts that uh, were there designed to feed water through to keep the place cool. And in India, where it's often hot, you could go up to this um, high place and have a beautiful view and the breeze is blowing. It's quite cool. But it's in such good nick because it was almost not lived in at all. Because after building this incredible city, they realised there wasn't really a secure water source. And so it was only really used for about 10 years, which if you think about it is not very long, and then abandoned and is now simply a tourist attraction. There's no point building a place where there's no water because we need water. And when you have to go and fetch the water physically yourself, we have these marvellous things called pipes and... Uh, Warragamba Dam out there in the west, slightly higher than us, and all the water gravity feeds down through these pipes. And 
We go into our kitchen or bathroom and turn on the tap up here. We can do it. And water comes out. And you don't understand what a miracle that is. How wonderfully liberating that is. If you are utterly dependent on water and you have to walk an hour to get whatever you can carry and bring it back to your home, this becomes visceral in a way that we hardly understand. Years ago, one of the international aid groups Joe and I support realised that in many communities the most significant thing they could do to transform the life of everyone there was to dig a well. To sink a well where safe water, drinking water, could be found. And if you took half an hour off the walking to go and collect water, it radically transformed the life of the people in that community. In some ways, we hardly know we're alive, you know. Uh, there's so many things that were once a daily struggle that have been pretty much overcome, and we joke about our first world problems, and in a funny kind of way, that's shorthand for, well, I have everything I need. I'm a bit afraid I'm not going to get all my luxuries. First world problems. We're entering into a phase of first world problems now, although there could be some critical stuff as well. But the other thing about this story where Jesus is playing on the idea of Jacob's well. You, you're listening? Yeah? Good. Playing on this idea of Jacob's well. So there's, there's the water and this life substance but it's also, the well is a source. And source is an interesting idea. It's where you find uh, the beginning of something. And the history of Jacob's well is kind of um, part of a complex history of the Samaritan people. You might know, I've mentioned it here before, the Samaritans were essentially the northern tribes of Israel. And some generations earlier, the Assyrian regime had come and taken those northern tribes into exile in Assyria. But unlike the Babylonian exile, which was Judah and Benjamin going into Babylon sometime later, the Assyrian exile, the people were dispersed amongst all the peoples of Assyria. And because they were there for some time, they started to intermarry and become enculturated by their Assyrian captives. And this is quite a natural thing that you would see happen uh, the mingling of cultures and practices and so forth. But the Jews and the southern uh, tribes generally regarded the Samaritans as traitors and collaborators with those who had taken them off into exile. And I think this sentiment became even stronger after they experienced their own exile and were taken away into Babylon. But they, were st they stayed in their discrete communities. And there's this fascinating thing which I learnt in the Uniting Church where if you have a non-English-speaking background mono-ethnic congregation, let me tell you what that means. So say you've got a, a group of Koreans, right? They all speak Korean, they come from Korea, and they, they form a congregation here in Sydney. It's an uncanny thing, but most often they will retain the culture of their homeland really strongly. It's kind of, I don't know if it's a form of grief or post-traumatic stress or something like that. But the snapshot of how culture was at home and in the church at home, when they came out, that's what they stick to. And even though the culture moves on in their home country, they stay the same. And they become the true believers because they're sticking to the culture. And everyone else is falling away. It's a really interesting phenomenon. And I suspect something of this happened for the southern tribes after their exile experience. They were taken into Babylon. They stayed as their discrete communities. 
and they were guarding their culture as if it were their life. And anyone who compromised was a collaborator or a betrayer, that kind of thing. And uh, the Northern brothers, when they realised there was a, a breach between these two groups, they looked back to older traditions. And one of the older traditions was going back to the patriarchs and remembering that, yeah, the Jews might be you know, pure and fancy, or that, but we share patriarchy, you know? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they're the Samaritans' patriarchs as well. So they went back deeper into the history, drew out some of those old stories, Jacob's well, source of water, source of meaning, source of identity, and this became a holy place for them. It was a source for them for who they were. And in a funny kind of way, the Jerusalem temple provided a source for the Jews for who they were. The Jews maintained it was the only authorised place to meet with God. Of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> and they would say that's what God said. Well, of course, they'd say that as well. Um, and the idea was you protected people from being compromised by all these other untrue or unfaithful influences. So there's some good in all of that. There's many synchronizing influences around at every turn and we can see that for Israel they often did adopt the customs of fertility gods and so forth and terrible practices did from time to time come into their uh, culture and their life. But just as Jacob's well was a focal point in the history and identity for the Samaritans, the temple in Jerusalem was the central point of reference for the Jews. The Jews conducted, uh, the worship that was conducted in that site in Jerusalem persisted as the single most important cultural shaping and guarding activity of these people. It was a source for them of who they were in that sense. And in this conversation with the Samaritan woman, we also hear a bit more of her source story. I am not married. Ah, you rightly say you're not married. You've had five husbands and the guy you're with at the moment is not your husband. How do you know that? Well, probably everybody knows that. It's not a miracle there. But it's her source story. For both the Jews and the Samaritans, they look to their history to inform them of who they were and they were proud of their patriarchs, and they honoured their traditions, and they remembered their glorious past, and it sustained their sense of self in their ignominious present. And they, their hope for a glorious future was probably somewhat like a victorious return to the way things once were when they were a lot better. And you hear this a lot in politics, and even in our own lives. We, we think back to the glory days. Ah, oh, when I was young when I could do this and that, or whatever it might be. For this woman at the well, her personal past was also a defining impact, having a defining impact on her ongoing life. A series of husbands in a culture where this marked her out as a pariah. Perhaps she also longed to go back to the day before her first marriage, where things were much simpler and straightforward for her. And we can understand that. In a world where we have so much craziness going on at the moment, we, who among us doesn't yearn for simpler times? But Jesus says, I want to offer you living water that will bubble forth 
and bless people. So the interesting thing, Jesus shared the, the, the heritage of both the Jews and the Samaritans in a way because their patriarchs were the same. And like them, Jacob was Jesus' ancestor as well. And Jesus' offer of new life is one that grows out of that heritage, although more clearly shaped by the Jews, and that's why Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews. But the, the life that Jesus is offering is not circumscribed by that heritage. It's built from it and grows out of it, but it's not contained solely within it, as it were. Jesus doesn't attempt to distance himself from where he had come from. He understands that he is fulfilling the promises that are contained in his history and his heritage. And this living water that springs forth, springs forth from an old well, as it were. It's living water nonetheless. And it's living water because it's not limited by what has gone before. The life Jesus offers engages each new day, not in the fear that it will be different from yesterday, but in the hope and expectation that whatever may come, we will meet God in this new day. We will discover God at work, and through our words and our actions and our presence in the community, we will experience God, and our communities will experience God. I got a, an uncanny kind of whiff of this last Sunday. Uh, I don't know if any of you noticed, but I wasn't here last Sunday. <laughs> I was in bed just a couple of metres in that direction. It was glorious to have a day in bed. I really recommend it. Uh, I won't go into the details of all of that. But there was also another thing that happened on Sunday, early Sunday morning. You may have noticed that all the windows along the pub got smashed by a hammer. A couple of disgruntled people in a situation of uh, really violent vandalism and when their identities were discovered from the CCTV footage, uh, a couple of the young fellows from the pub went and uh, addressed these people and a melee broke out, a very violent brawl in the open streets and onto the green and so forth and blood was spilt, not death, but, you know, chipped faces and so forth and uh, the police were called and there was quite a shaken sense in the community because... We're a community that doesn't usually see that kind of eruption of violence. Of course, I was lying in my bed there. I heard some of it going on and uh, told my daughters not to look at it. But um, one of the people who gathered outside, you know, were talking about what had happened and there was a bit of upset, made the joke to Joe, said, where's our pastor when we need him? <laughs> and just quietly, I was really chuffed by that. Because even though they were joking, there's a truth to it. They were looking for comfort and they thought of their pastor. And the way we are in the community has an impact. And that's really important. And it's not just me as a minister, it's all of us as people who care for one another and people will yearn for us at those moments when that is important. That's part of the new life. But there's also a new identity that we get when we walk in this new way. You see, if you follow Jesus, you're no longer a Samaritan or a Jew or a Gentile. You become one of Christ's people, like Christ, 
And that's why the early followers of Christ were called Christians. They were Christ-like ones, ones who were following Christ. And this does not obliterate our background or our heritage or our ethnicity. It simply relativizes these things next to a much more important identifier that we belong to Christ. And that's why Paul declares in Galatians 3, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Clothed yourself, the identifying things. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. These are the main identifying categories of the day. And he's saying these things are not important for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants according to the promise. It's interesting. It's not a declaration of inclusion. It doesn't say there is both Jew and Gentile. There's both slave and free. There's both male. He says, no, there's neither. Neither category is operable in this situation. Those categories fail to sum up all of who you are. They can't tell you who you are. Because the real mystery in this new identity and this new source of life, it's a glorious mystery, but it is an inexhaustible resource, as it were. In fact, the more we engage with it, the more we share it with others, the more it is enjoyed and the more of it there is. There's no other resource in all of creation like this, I don't think. It grows exponentially and has greater power to bless people the more people deeply move into it and understand it more thoroughly and live it and experience it. This is living water that has this uncanny characteristic that the more it is consumed, the more it flows forth. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it? The phenomenon of panic buying of toilet paper is interesting. This is kind of like the opposite of what Jesus is talking about in a way. It's almost become a meme of our virus crisis at the moment. Um, and I was talking with some neighbours the other day and we agreed. And I, didn't, I wasn't even preaching. I was just talking with them. And uh, <laughs> they said, it's really weird, you know, because if one of us needed toilet paper, how long do you reckon it would take before we could find someone in our neighbourhood who'd give us some? Five minutes, a couple of phone calls, put it on our um, WhatsApp snap uh, talking app thing and someone would say, yeah, I've got a roll, you can have it. And I just wondered whether the need to stockpile things is kind of a symptom of a pre-existing condition of dislocation and fear that I'm going to be on my own in this and the resources of a community are not going to be there for me. See, when Jesus offers living water to a tired and vulnerable woman who he had no business talking to, he was pointing to a way of life that would change everything. It would change everything for her if she was to engage with it, and it would change everything for everyone around her as well. It brings the life-giving dynamic of the kingdom of God into the lived reality in the midst of a broken and thirsty world. And it is an inexhaustible 
resource. The more it is enjoyed, the more of it there is to enjoy, and it bubbles forth to everyone. Let us drink deeply of that water. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't move from fear. You didn't engage people according to superficial markers. You didn't let their past circumscribe who they would always be. You called people into life. You believed in unbelievable things and you blessed people in such ways that they themselves became resources of life for other people. We thank you that you call us into that kingdom. And we say, yes, make mine a double. Amen.